it's just weird because we usually intro Web of Queer differently. And I'm trying to remember how you guys usually intro. Because usually, like, there's a pun at the very beginning, and then you do your oh. sound and then come out of yeah. it. So. Daniel likes to make jokes. Yeah, I have one. Um. Okay. You can, yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, sometimes you just need to recast the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're holding this valley no matter what. We're gonna die. We're not gonna die. We can't die, Bendis. You know why? Because we are so very pretty. We are just too pretty for God to let us die. Hello, everyone. My name is Jessica, if this voice sounds different. Uh, today I have Shayna with me, and we are going to be starting the Firefly rewatch again. Uh, Daniel decided that he had 4,000 other things to do, and I have been recast in the role of Daniel. Uh, yes, hopefully a, a little bit more affable Daniel. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I hope so too. Yeah, I don't have those things clinging to the back of my head. No, I think he actually suggested me because... After you guys recorded, uh, me and him ended up having 90% of the same conversation of the recorded conversation you guys had. So <laughs> he's like, maybe Jessica's right for this project. <laughs> and I'm happy to step in. Yeah, it's entirely probable that he was just like, ah, yes. <laughs> and then he went off to talk with um, other eruditorum press boys about uh, Nixon and Kennedy. So I am totally okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I honestly have not listened to that episode that Daniel and I did, and m- nor given it much thought since we recorded it, and I was like, I'm not doing that again, because <laughs> as much as I love him, it was just not going to be a fun podcast for either of us. Coming back to it as a brown coat, officially. Yes, I am an official brown coat. Yes, I don't have a brown coat, but I'm sure I have brownish coats. <laughs> yeah, so I did just want to start us off uh, just kind of explaining our history with the show, in case nobody has gone back and listened to the other podcast. You know, I'm also new to this project, so just kind of give a you know brief summary of how we found the show, whether or not we watched it live or not, you know, kind of our history with fandom. So I guess I'll go first. Mm-hmm. I watched Firefly when it originally aired um, with my mom, when my mom and I were basically watching anything science fiction that showed up on television. So I have kind of a weird history with it because I was one of those people who watched it originally. Um, but then a few years later, uh, well, quite a few years later in my mind, at least, I had some friends that were going to Dragon Con in Atlanta, and I was looking through the con guide, essentially, and I was like, wow, almost all the cast of Firefly is going to be there. You guys should really meet them, because they're cool. Flash forward to the next year when I got to go to Dragon Con and kind of quote-unquote meet them. I walked by them in a crowd and got to feel very hipster geek as I was like, but I liked it before it was cool. (laughs) But yeah, I, I since Firefly, I very much followed Nathan Fillion's career. Uh, I, I did realize I was a big fan of him primarily, and I've watched a few other things with the other actors, and I have a history with Whedon that predates Firefly because I grew up on the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie and then show. So I was very invested in the show, and later when I went to study in China, there were all the kind of cultural references that I felt like I got a little bit better um, so when I returned to it to talk about it with Daniel, it was very much uh, in on a sentimental note more than anything. Yeah, I have I have a different story with Firefly for me. Uh, Firefly came out during a time where I wasn't watching any television at all. Like you, I watched a ton of sci-fi with my mom, but that was like when Next Generation and Stargate were running. Mm-hmm. And I just fell out of television for a while. And eventually I found the internet and the internet's like, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. 
why haven't you watched this yet, Jessica? You have to watch this. Uh, very similar to my introduction to Doctor Who. So finally, I sat down and watched it and fell in love with it just immediately. Uh, the last three lines of the episode Serenity uh, we're reviewing today are just kind of like, yep, that's exactly what I need in my life right now. And it's basically become comfort food for me. Like, if I'm homesick mm. and just I'm not going to be moving from my bed, I just... I open up Netflix and I sit there for 12 hours and I watch the show and I usually skip the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's always been a nice, comfortable place for me to go. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned the movie because I really don't even associate the movie with the show that much. They feel like such separate entities to me. Yeah. They, um, they are so on just different, different, the pace is different. Like, there's so the much. The tone is different. Yeah. And the continuity is different. <laughs> which I'm sure we'll get to. So into the actual review of the episode then, uh, I guess just kind of going chronologically through it, because this actually aired differently than Netflix has it, correct? Like what was I believe pro- so. This was the pilot that wasn't the pilot, but is now back in the spot of pilot, I believe. <laughs> uh, it when it aired, they showed Train Job first, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I think that's so. Yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. So, but this one, I think, does a much better job of establishing the characters. Like, there's a whole bunch of just like three second moments I point to and go, "That's exactly who that character is." And I and I think that that is a large part of Joss Whedon's style. He's a, a third generation Hollywood TV writer, and I'll try not to reference directly to Daniel too much, but one of the big divisions between him and I, I think, is when he sees Western, he very much is thinking of spaghetti Western, historical Western. I would assume Whedon is a bit more like me. Like uh, We both grew up in Southern California, and I don't, I don't think of the spaghetti Westerns. I think of the Lone Ranger. <laughs> I think of Bonanza. I think of those shows where you got that sense of family in the middle of nowhere. And I think you get that really quickly, just even though we start in the middle of a a battle scene. Yeah, we do start with the battle scene. And this is my very first introduction to these characters. And once we get past the battle scene, that's where I think the show actually starts. Because uh, the battle scene just feels like, it doesn't feel like it was added on, but it definitely gives you a a sense of these characters were a little bit different. Um, you know, it certainly sets the scene. It tells you why these people, you know, especially Mal, is annoyed with, you know, the Alliance. And he's annoyed with the cloth. It's actually, like, I've seen this so many times, and I never noticed before. Uh, when he's talking to Zoe in the background, and she's like, everything's going to be okay, right? And he's like, yeah, why wouldn't it be? And he kisses the cross. This is the first time I ever actually noticed that. And that makes everything with him and Book make so much more sense. I think Mal is a really interesting figure. And the fact that we get to meet both Mal and Zoe in the middle of a battle scene where we see both of them go from happy to grieving we see how they play against each other in a stressful situation. And you're right. We also see them kind of feeling that relief for a second. Uh, there, so there's like this wide swath of emotional text there, but also kind of just sneaks in the story like, oh, these are the rebels and those are the Alliance and they're the bad guys, clearly, because they're just killing everyone. And we get that very slow shot of um, Mal just... His heart breaking on the screen. Yeah. Adorable little Nathan Fillion. <laughs> yeah. The moment where you, know, you get told that the rebels have been told to surrender, and you know that message had to have gotten to the Alliance before the Alliance just literally firebombs the entire just valley. And Mal is just standing there, just completely shell-shocked. Like, this is mm. a man who has no other emotion to give except to just to stand there and be witness to this. Uh, you know, even if somebody gets shot right next to him, like he doesn't react to it at all because he just, he's just beginning moments of basically what becomes PTSD. 
which I don't think they, I don't think the show follows through with that much, but it certainly, you know, would be a very compelling origin story for something like that. We get to meet Mal, and I think you're right in that we get a sense of what would be PTSD if PTSD had been as much in the headlines as it is now when the show came out. I don't think that we had quite the language around it yet for it to have been made more of an issue or like more of a concrete thing in the show. And it also, for me, starts to become, in the same vein, um, a story of Mal's masculinity. And there's a lot of different perceptions and performances of masculinity that very clearly feel identified with the Western slash war culture. And that was something that I hadn't noticed as much until this watch through uh, how I don't want to say heavy handed, but how much this show is kind of implicitly talking about gender and gender roles and so, therefore, a lot of discussions of what is a healthy masculinity and why. Yeah, the first time I watched it, I pinged to a lot of, you know, a, a lot of different examples of, oh, this is somebody who doesn't need to perform in a toxic manner to get his, you know, to, to be a dude in this world. You know, I mean, you have the scene where, you know, he's got the bonnet on and he's, you know, cursing people down or, you know, he's just sitting naked on a rock in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, okay, this is happening. <laughs> like, there's yeah. this, they play with it a lot. And I really enjoy that. You know, I think a lot of the show is set for the male gaze. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, anytime Anar is on screen, but it's male gaze, you know. Anytime. Yeah. Uh, the scene with Kaylee and the strawberry is like the male gaze on steroids. Oh God! But and uh, I mean, she's like groaning and everything. Yeah, Kaylee, Kaylee, oh Kaylee, Kaylee, and just about everything is sexual. Yeah. Ah, oh, like I love Kaylee. I love Kaylee so much. Mm-hmm. But they wrote so much of that you know, passive femininity into it. The you know, let's make sure everything's okay. Like there's a part in here where she's she's lying on a hospital bed, and she's like, yeah, but he didn't. He wasn't actually gonna let me die. Like he's, she's making excuses for somebody. You know? Yeah, uh, Simon. And you know, but there's also a lot of pieces in this where you know the male gaze is like very abruptly taken away from you. Uh, I, I guess we're just gonna skip around a bunch. Cause I'm not very good at going in order. But there's the moment when you know Simon is. You know, Mal is trying to figure out what the heck is going on with Simon, and Mal opens the crate where there's a woman that's literally fridged, and you know you have two guys here arguing about what her fate is going to be, and then she she's an adult fetus in a box. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know the air literally gets pierced with her screaming. The focus is immediately. Wait a second, there's a woman in the middle of this. She might have an opinion too. And there's so many different places that the focus of the show bounces back and forth between. And that particular scene I thought was funny because I didn't notice again until this time that Inara is standing there with her robe in her hands in the background, that entire scene. And for some reason, they make her wait to go to River, um, even though the actress, uh, Baccarine, seemed to be picking up on like the, no, Inara is meant to be a motherly figure. Mm-hmm. She would probably be like, fuck all y'all, there's a naked girl in the middle of this. Yeah. The scene around the kitchen table, right after that, mm-hmm. I think exposes a lot about who a lot of these different characters are. Um, let's see, am I remembering the order of the episode right now? Because there's a scene around the kitchen table. There's two scenes around the kitchen table. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of the first one, actually, okay. where, you know, they're all having dinner and... You know, nothing has really, like, exploded on the ship yet. And Jane has just gotten stripped down by Mal for being just a lewd asshole. And... Yeah, I I actually, as I was watching this, I sent in a message to some people. I was like, Jane is disgusting. Mm. Uh, he, I wrote it down. He makes a joke about Kaylee wishing that Simon was a gynecologist. Yeah. It's, and then says she's getting all lubed up about it, and that's when that's when Mal's like, "No, bye bye, no, get out of here." 
And you can see Jane kind of doing that calculation in his head, like, is this worth getting kicked off the ship for? And he makes the calculation, no, it's not worth getting kicked off the ship for, but God damn it, I'm going to get some mashed potatoes. And I'm just going to like, right. that is exactly who you are. Like, I'm going to milk this for every ounce that I possibly can for myself. Uh, like, okay. Yeah, that fits the actor pretty well. Um. Right? Yeah, no, again, the, the actor, not so great. Mm. Yeah, it took me a while, actually. Uh, over the past few years to kind of watch this again, to let him just kind of fade back into the background of bullshit. He doesn't seem to be much of a factor anymore, which... Yeah, I've gotten to a point where if the actor is an asshole, but he's playing an asshole, it it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I won't actively support anything he does going forward, mm. but, you know, Netflix already has my money. He's, right. I don't think he's getting anything else out of it, so... I hope not. Yeah, but, and then the other scene around the kitchen table where, you know, River has just been introduced to the cast and everyone is like, their brains are like, why? Why is this happening? Right. I love Simon's introduction to her. He starts kind of by puffing himself up. He's like, I am like, I'm super good at everything, guys. Like, seriously. But my, but my little sister is like 10 times better than me. You know, it, it's, it's definitely brotherly love that's going on there, and I appreciate that. I definitely agree. Like, one of the things that I think is so powerful about River is really her relationship with Simon, and the fact we see from the first episode that he could have had his own life. He could have been a wealthy doctor and just let his sister go, but she was important to him. And what I think is interesting about that scene for me is that he described her as being more than gifted. Uh, she's a gift. And it pinged me because it's a little bit like, oh, she's not a gifted person. She is a gift object. Um, and mm. so there was a little bit of like, okay, that feels a little objectified. Um, but we immediately get this follow-up with the direction where the camera is on her, but we get some kind of chopped up, reactions of of her which seem to be reflecting that fractured state of mind and the only other time i really noticed that kind of direction in the episode was with anara when she is uh with her client it cuts away and kind of gives the implication that she's a little bored <laughs> <laughs> and i thought that there was it was interesting that that kind of interiority through how the show was visually. I only remember that happening with those two female characters, but there's a lot of little stuff going on that I feel ends up really giving both to the characterization, but also making all those references to those bigger character types that we associate with the Western genre and with the space opera dramas, because I think Whedon, uses nostalgia here purposefully. I don't think you can really deny that as part of his style. I, I would definitely say that's part of his style. And like you said, you know, he's died in the wool television writer. You know, he has the timing of this kind of, of how television works down and when to reveal something and when to keep it back. You have the whole scene where Mal tells Simon that, that Kaylee has Kaylee's died, and it's it's so mean. And they both call him out for it, which I find is off, which I find lovely. But you know, you have the Mal's line where he's like, "You don't belong for this world." You know, I threatened your life, and that it's come to play that your life is now forfeit because she died. And you have this just excellent just montage of Simon just running through the hallways, and you have. You know, that three seconds of book looking all solemn, just completely out of context. And you get to the part where it's revealed that she's, you know, Kaylee's fine. She's going to survive yeah. this. And then immediately you go up to the captain's chair and everybody's laughing their ass off. And uh <laughs> it's just that the pacing in this is just right off the bat. It's professional. You know, this is you can't in any way say that 
you know, the direction in this was choppy or the tone was weird. Like, you do have very different tones throughout the episode, but certainly for something that's an hour and a half long, nothing slows down in this. There isn't a place that feels oddly paced to me or that you know, shouldn't belong there. Because you, know, you have so many different sets and so many different things going on and so many different people to introduce, and it feels completely cohesive. I, I definitely agree with that. I think part of that has to do that the episode has... It takes advantage of having distinct location differences. So when you're on the Firefly, uh, the Serenity, this is not exactly trivial knowledge because it's pretty well known, but they actually built the spaceship like mm-hmm. as a set. And I really don't care who you are. I, I love CGI and all that kind of thing, but when you have an actual set, the actors will act differently because they are responding to directly to what is around them. Um, and there's a very lived-in feel to it. Uh, I also think that the fact that they continually refer- return to the ship gives it a nice sense of center, because ultimately it, it ends up being pretty much in three acts, where we get introductions, introduction of plot, resolution of plot, but it's not in a heavy-handed way. I think um, another thing that really adds to that for me is the fact that we do get to see how the crew relates to each other. Uh, we get a lot of character information, um, for example, with, with uh, Wash and Zoe. They definitely end up giving a kind of chorus performance in that their relationship with each other kind of helps check in with the mood of everyone on the ship. Uh, when they're complaining about, we'll, we'll call it work versus home life. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the little bit of quibbles with, you know, we have to ask Mal when we can have sex, essentially. And we get a, a, a point where Jane makes some joke about wanting Kaylee to be quiet. And Mal's like, yeah, you almost wish you could duct tape her mouth and, and throw her in a hole for a month. And right when you're like, hey, that's not really cool. She, Kaylee goes up and is like, I love you, Cap, and kisses them. Uh, so there's a lot of that humor throughout that you're right, that the timing is is just absolutely on point, but it's also well used. And a lot of, I think a lot of criticism towards Whedon is that he is so stylistic with his writing and with uh, that pacing of the comedy and large amounts of dialogue in general. Uh. <laughs> yeah, definitely the introduction to Wash and Zoe as a couple, where you have the tension of work is home, and how do we separate those two? And Wash makes that sarcastic comment, like, you know, make sure you call him sir. And Mal walks in and she's like, yes, sir. Uh, like, she has just told Mal exactly what happened in that conversation. Like, because oh, they yeah. know each other so well. You know, I don't envision a scenario where she didn't just tell Mal that, yes, we were just talking about you. And yeah, it there, there's something good. I, I was going to say, there's just something about them so clearly being best friends in addition to co-workers because of their wartime experience. It's just it's it's not even it's it's kind of a completely unvocalized part of that performance between Zoe and Mal. Yeah, I do love the episode that we have coming up, which sets the record completely straight when it comes to those two. Yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the entire series. It's like, no, men and women can just work together. End of story. <laughs> like, really? We may be best friends, but we are just friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that, though. Yeah. I also think one of the things that I really love about Kaylee is... Very early on, she clearly becomes the peacemaker and the one who actually wants to bring people on board and actually wants to make friends. And when Mal makes fun of Inara later, Kaylee actually thinks that Ambassador is more fitting for what Inara does than whore. And this is where I think it gets really interesting because we do get this kind of conflation between like if it's going to be sexy it's probably going to be a little bit more feminine Mm. and funny usually 
Um, and if it's going to be rugged and fighting, it is much more masculine. Um, I think later on we get a little bit more dynamic to that where the feminine characters or the femme characters are definitely made to literally hitch up their skirts and fire guns, um, <laughs> which is great. Uh, but it, when I look back at this, it really is the stuff I have issues with are stuff that I, you know, have issues with Whedon in general. Um, and hopefully if you're listening to this, you have checked out my short essay that I wrote on Aruda Torn Press, uh, which gets into that a little bit more. So I'm not going to say it all again right now. <laughs> but the whole dynamic of, of men and women throughout the episode becomes really interesting to me because like we talked about River coming out of a box and being vulnerable. We also get Mal talking about the mole and saying that he, he likes to shoot shoot at girls when he's nervous. Not too shortly followed by, I, I have it down as a rape joke-ish, where Zoe is talking about the Reavers. Yeah, and that says so much about Zoe in just that point, where she can say all three of those things with a straight face and then punctuate it with, and if we're very lucky, it will happen in that order. Like, it's n- it doesn't feel like a joke to me. It feels like, no, this is some deep fucking shit, uh, and I'm just going to punctuate that by making you actually think about it again. Like, I'm going to say these three horrible things, and then I'm going to make you, as the audience, think about them in a different order. Like, I'm going to make you specifically concentrate on how horrible those things are. You know, and not let that pass by. Uh, because I think what I think is interesting, as soon as we get that introduction to the Reavers, we very much get the last piece of the moral landscape that this episode is painting with the characters. We have our lawful good. We have our lawful neutral. We have our <laughs> unlawful good. Um, these are our chaotic bad. <laughs> Absolutely. And as far as you know, a generic bad guy for a show, because I think the Reavers do kind of fill in that space. The Alliance gets a little bit more characterization than the Reavers. But having said that, I think the fact that we have these kind of Mad Max-esque human zombie people who who really just see other people as as flesh, um, it, it's a really... It, it preys on some really base fears, I guess, is what I... Yeah, absolutely. The, the zombie themes in general fascinate me. You know, what happens when you lose your humanity? Who are you? Like, you're still flesh and bone human, but if your mind goes, what happens? Uh, I think that the Reavers... Right. You know, I, I think they get poorly used here. I think they're just kind of a threat, but they, you know, until you get to the movie, you don't interact with them directly you know you kind of you know, throughout the series you see the results of them being around but there's no like direct one-on-one like everything zoe threatens here you know isn't something that we actually end up getting confronted with in the episode to our core crew right and they also serve to be a little bit of a reality check and that we have this fight going on between the crew and Simon, who they don't quite trust yet, between the crew and the Fed, who will be dealt with, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the Alliance. Um, So we have all these little points in motion creating tension. I do like that the scene when they're waiting to find out whether or not the Reavers are going to take notice of them or whether or not the Reavers are going to act upon their presence. Uh, what everybody goes to as, you know, their, where their comfort is or where their priorities lie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I find each of those little, you know, there are, there are four or five seconds for each of the characters. And again, it's just more character building, you know, and Nara's like, fuck this, I'm out. You know, and she opens what you assume was going to be a lethal injection. You know, uh, Simon runs to his sister. You know, Walsh and Zoe are, like, clasping hands. That's what I was going to say. We get each character's response to the Reavers, and how they respond to the Reavers gives us a little bit more of where the reality of that they 
that they currently exist in are. The crew who maybe has never seen a Reaver, but who know that they are reality, versus Simon who says, oh, I thought that they were just, you know, boogeyman stories, essentially. That kind of disconnect from reality is really what Mal is most concerned with about Simon. And I appreciate that probably more than I used to, because Kaylee likes the doctor, or Kaylee likes Simon because he is a doctor, and because she feels like that knowledge has some special power in itself, like it must be more than what she has. But Mal, and I think the show is is kind of telling us uh, we are supposed to see things as Mal does, Mal looks at Simon and says, okay, I don't really care about all your knowledge, uh, you're you're strong enough, and you actually can help people when they're sick, so you're useful to me. And I think that idea of you need to be useful to the whole group, that is an interesting drive for characters in, in a show that is otherwise, you know, kind of um, tied to a much larger through line. Yeah, certainly if you're taking the shows, these are a cast of characters that are a family insert. You know, you have you know, the father figure, Mal. You know, you have the daughter, which is Kaylee. Like, Mal actually calls her Mei Mei, which I believe is, mm-hmm. you know, little sister. And yes. you have... it means little sister. You know, and you, you have, you know, you know, aunts and uncles and all these other, you know, various influences in here. And I had a thought, let me get it back. My family insert, I have no idea what's well, going to go Well, side note. Go ahead. Yeah, see if you can remember it, but... I did just want to mention that as someone who kind of vaguely knows Chinese and who doesn't really know it anymore, the the Chinese in the show is just awful. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a few things like I think Zoe has pretty decent pronunciation, but like the pronunciation is super off. And it's also like Hong Kong slang, I think, from from an interview I saw before. So I always say this because I have had people in passing ask me, like, oh, do you know what they're saying? No, no. And it uh, it all has to do, I think, tonally. I think the Chinese just stands in for a lot. I like to think that Mei Mei sounds like little sister or at least is obviously diminutive, even if you don't know that it means little sister. Yeah, certainly the slang that's being used in here, the inserts for curse words. You understand their curse words. There's very little mistranslation that's going on there. And that's strictly because it was on Fox, you know, primetime television, and you couldn't say what the fuck is going on. You, you, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, which is why they did all of that cultural appropriation and inserted all of this Chinese in here to say, look, we've evolved a bit and our cultures are merging as a shorthand for we're going to use a bunch of things because we want to swear, but don't actually get to be able to swear. And mm-hmm. honest to goodness, I would have been okay with it if they had had, like, an Asian character, or maybe even two. I think we get, like, an illusion that Morena Bakarin might be have some Asian heritage. Yeah, if if the show's insinuating anything, though, no, it's certainly not Eastern Asian. And, no. You know, she definitely gets more of an Indian feel with the long silk robes and, and it, oh, well, it's, and she does the tea ceremony too, so it's this There's, really weird mix. Of, it's a very weird mix. Yeah. It, she, she's supposed to be the, but we didn't mean to steal all of it character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we tried. No, you didn't. But that, you know, that's, you know, that, that's how the show expressed itself here. And I think it makes sense for the time period. On I like hate to say that, but even in the past decade, diversity in, in casting, ugh, unfortunately, it may not have gotten that much better, but audiences are a lot more aware of it. I think something that the show benefits from is being pre-contemporary geek culture. Uh, it doesn't have to stand up to a Tumblr audience or an MRA group who could definitely find issues and, uh... Yeah, there's plenty in this that Twitter would tear apart. Uh, And and, and rightly so. Yes, yeah. Uh, I I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with critiquing a show. Certainly not. But I I do think that one of the things that does make Firefly special 
and that people idealize uh, idealize it so much is because it it feels very representative of that time period that it came out. It feels pre-internet. And I don't really know how to explain that other than, you know, perhaps it's my nostalgia for it and my sentimentality towards the characters. But I definitely think it is curated in the show. The idea that this is a show that is written to give you a family, give you a community, give you this, this group of people you could imagine yourself traveling with. Yeah, certainly in its presentation to me, when it came to me on the internet, you know, it came with this preconceived you know, fan wisdom folklore about it where, you know, it was canceled too soon and isn't Fox, you know, aren't they just the assholes here? You know, it, it came with a prepackaged nerd conspiracy theory, which is kind of what kept the ball rolling for the show, even after it was taken off the air. You know, I, I think it that's... It really did. Yeah. A lot of people have a lot invested in the show, but I mean, I think no, go ahead. Yeah, but um, usually, you know, the first time you're watching it, if you didn't watch it at first run, you kind of have you already have like this prepackaged brown coats in the back of your head. You already kind of have a fan lore about it, and you already have a community that has introduced this to you as something that they love. So a lot of the criticism of it, at least on a first watch. I understand it melting away for people. And I think for Firefly, it is really a show that at this point in time is just, you cannot watch it and not have the fandom in your kind of backseat. Mm. Everything in the episode, people will quote just about anything. They'll talk just about anything. So going through this episode, it's like, oh, okay, we have our first time we see strawberries with Kaylee. We know that they become really important as kind of part of her character. So each of these little moments of her that we're talking about having the male gaze on her uh, with the strawberries kind of gets amplified by what we see with her. And then later in the fact that we get Kaylee as being this very sexually open um, and adventurous, even though perhaps um, inexperienced person. Oh, I don't know if even inexperienced is the right word. And I remember at the time, at the time period, all of it was really refreshing. There hadn't been two women on a show that talked about sex, kind of acknowledging that they were romanticizing it. Kaylee talks about, oh, how many of them fell in love with you and wanted to whisk you away from it all? And Inara says, oh, just the one. I must be losing my edge. And it's clearly a jab at Mal being an ass. You know, as problematic are all these things, I know how when I first saw these characters, there was a lot of stuff I hadn't seen before. Yeah, certainly the episode that you're talking about where, you know, we get all of basically everybody's introduction again. That's my favorite episode of the entire season because it does start off with, you know, Kaylee. You know, she is literally having sex in the back of in the back of Serenity. Uh, but she's also like, yeah, that's busted. Uh, like, she's not bored by what's going on, but she's still aware of everything, which I find so amusing, uh, you know, because you you see that she has, she's not just there, be, well, she's actually there because there's an engine there, I mean, because engines get her hot, you know, is what the tattooed guy says, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a nice little moment of, one, she's a sexual being, and two, she knows what she's doing outside of that as well. You know, yeah. She has you know, a certain set of skills uh, to badly steal a quote. You know, you kind of relive that with everybody else as well. It's it's almost hard to talk about this episode because it does it it, it is like just laying out so many things that we get to see progress later on, and I, I think that is one of the reasons that Firefly is still popular is that despite all the reasons it might be problematic. There's a lot of just really good storytelling here, and yes, Joss Whedon has a style, and if you don't like his style, it probably would not work out that well, um, but that's to be said for anyone. I happen to hold the very unpopular opinion that Breaking Bad just isn't all that good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't finish it either. It didn't yeah. capture, me, capture me that much. 
Yeah. But the, um, like, at the end of this, you know, certainly Josh Sweden's style, you know, at the end of everything, there's always this, you know, 95% of the crew at the end of this, after everything that's happened, they still have a bit of hope in them. And I really think that is yeah. a huge through line throughout a lot of Josh Sweden's work is, you know, either, you know, things are getting better, things can get better. The, the episode ends with, we're still flying. Oh, it's just flying, like that's it. And it's like it's enough, and that uh, sometimes saccharine as that might feel, uh, it, it's a message I don't think we hear enough, and it's certainly something that resonates with me a lot. Well, know. and as a message coming from a soldier, yeah, you know, um, somebody who's dealt with a lot of shit. You know, certainly personally for me, you know, I, I've dealt with physical illness, I've dealt with mental illness. You know, I've dealt with being part of the queer community, you know, and sometimes just knowing that there's another day and another day being enough, like... It's a big deal. Yeah, like, that hits me in those feels. Like, I appreciate hearing that. Yeah, I I appreciate that message being out there in, you know, such a popular piece of media. It, It isn't coming from any of the places that I'm putting it in. You know, it's not coming from a place of mental illness or queer identity, but, you know, it is coming from somebody who has just had probably one of the worst 48 hours of their lives, and they still want to keep going. Yeah, it's like it's like the adult Dory. It's the just keep swimming. Yeah. Just, I love the sentiment. And, and I think the idea that at the end of the day, when you band people together who are very different, have very different desires and goals and backgrounds. If if the goal at the end of the day is just to make it through another day, just to keep keep in the sky, you know, we haven't really talked about the theme song, but uh, Whedon wrote the theme song for this show. And I think there's a reason that, uh, as I as I said, my first real experience as a brown coat was outside a ballroom with a bunch of con goers singing the theme song. Mm. Um, and I don't think that that's a, a, an accident that we have this very hopeful show with a very singable campfire theme song that is all about, you can take everything you want, but you can't take the sky from me. Yeah. You know, I, I can always look up. I will always be able to see my way out because you can't take hope away. And the fact that what really ends up bonding so many of them is that they do hope for something better. And that's kind of what they end up seeing in each other is that sense of hope. I, I definitely think that is, I don't know, I won't say like the message of the show because that puts a little bit too fine of a point on it, but it, it definitely seems that that is what the show is about to some degree of how a group like this can create hope for each other. Yeah, definitely, you know, Mal is the patriarch, kind of going around and being like, what do you, how, how do you contribute to this community? You know, because yeah. I mean, that's the reason Jane's still around, because Jane's the muscle, or else Jane would not exist on, you know, he wouldn't be on the ship, because you know, even Simon's like, what does he do around here? And Mal doesn't trust him yet, so he's like, PR. Like, that's so funny. Right? And it's, I mean, he does kind of yeah. do PR in that he scares people away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just like, how do these, these group of people fit together? Like, if you were just to write these characters in isolation and give them to a group of people, like, it'd be a very hard time fitting all of these different characters together without having each of the pieces. Because if you just take Kaylee and Jane and put them in a room together, that show doesn't work. Oh, yeah. God, no. It you, would be you, really, really disgusting really fast. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you take uh, Inara and Simon and you put them in the room and they just stare at each other because they, they don't have a way to interact. Um, you know, I mean, certainly I think high society would factor into that a bit, but they're coming from very different parts of that high society. And I, I would say the only part seen where maybe I think it pushes it a little too far, but pointedly so, is the end of the episode when we get um, Inara having a moment with Book, where we have this very heightened moment of, you know, the preacher who isn't sure he can take it out in the wild world, so he goes to 
the prostitute to seek her wisdom about <laughs> the wild world. And I think the preacher and the whore dynamic is is a little bit on the nose. Yeah, um, pointed. <laughs> and the, the I some of my least favorite dialogue is what book gets to say <laughs> there. I don't even remember. It's just like, oh, I don't know if this is the right shit for me. Yeah. It, it's a it's a little bit hokey. Um, yeah, no, it's a fallen into the den of thieves, and I don't think that watching the man I was sworn to protect die was a bad thing. You know, I don't know where my moral compass is anymore, but I'm a preacher, so, ah! Like, you know, he's definitely having a crisis there. I'm going to but, go to the whore, because I know she has no moral compass. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, so bad. But for some reason, I, I think... One of the things that I really think is wonderful about the show is that it doesn't end up feeling as cheesy because we've already gotten from the show the message that these two are actually going to be very good friends for each other because they trust the honesty of each other. And little moments like this, even if they are cheesy, still feel like they are perhaps heavy because of the characters and not even the writing, which doesn't really make sense now that I say it out loud, but uh, hopefully you get the meaning or get the gist. Well, I think a lot of, I think a lot of what this show benefits from actually is the very short run. You know, the fact that we can say, yeah. well, they just didn't get to explain that yet, uh, which certainly the comics, which I haven't read, but I hear that they fill in a lot of the background stories for a lot of these characters that didn't get on the show. Yeah. But we do, in this short half-season run, you know, we do have the benefit of being able to say, we, we just didn't see that yet. Which I think is helpful when you have the Mal and Nara, will they, won't they. Yeah. Which usually grates on me. Usually that tension in a show, you know, certainly like something that lasted as long as Bones did. Um, <laughs> you know, like that, that tension in a show, you know, after a while, is just kind of like, They've had time to make this decision. <laughs> yeah, you guys have talked about it. You have really walked right up to that door and knocked on it, but not gone through. Mm-hmm. I, I think what works really well about Inara and Mal for me is that from you know the beginning in this episode, we see we see there be lots of references to some previous something that went down between the two of them where. She's not even that mad that he's referring to her as a whore because she has called him worse things, Mm -hmm. she says. So we get, even between them, a familial relationship. This idea that they've been putting up with each other for a while, whether they like it or not. Mm -hmm. So clearly they have chosen this over something else. But you're right. I think they, they get about as many episodes as they need to pull it out about as much as they can and play with it. But I don't know how long that would have lasted for me. Yeah, and the show doesn't revolve around the two of them specifically. It doesn't revolve around that relationship as well, which helps. Yes, it helps a lot. Uh, And also, I mean, we get Mal's other women uh, (laughs) as the show goes on. And I I think making it clear that, you know, as much as she is a actual prostitute who sells her time he is kind of a ladies man and a thief so he sells his time in the same fucking way uh and i really appreciate that we get that message pretty loud and clear throughout the show i don't think we even really have to wait for that because we do see mal refer to her as essentially the better business person and the one who makes them look good to the outside yeah, the show specifically says in this, like, you can't even drop ship on some planets without having a good companion on board. The, the message being sex sells, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But basically seeing that, you know, her chosen field of work does have value to it, you know. And yeah. there's nowhere in here that you feel that she was coerced into this life. There's nowhere in here that you feel like, you know, she couldn't get out of it if she didn't want to. Like, we have examples yeah. of companions God broke in the show. Mm-hmm. So you know, there are other alternatives if she wanted to have another life, which certainly in our modern context of how sex workers are treated right now <laughs> is good to say, you know, that you well, know, this is a chosen line of work. And I, I know I, like the, the appropriative stuff is, is where we get into, it starts feeling very much like 
a, a geisha, or at least the Western understanding of what geishas are, because mm. I'm going to straight up say I don't really know that much about him. But I think that the the fact that she clearly, her training and her knowledge is respected, not just by the other crew, like Kaylee, who has a, um, I guess, very literal, very direct appreciation for what Inara does, uh, just knowing that she has some kind of commitment to a, some version of morality. That always seems to be very important when you meet characters in the show of where is their moral compass and who holds it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly Kate, you know, she's fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. You know, she wants to know everything about it. You know, she thinks it's this ground, glamorous life, which isn't a story that would get told about, you know, modern day sex work. Yeah. Uh, it, it does have a bit of the Star Trek, everything's a little bit better in the future feel to it. Like, there's, yeah. there's a whole, you know, anything in the future kind of gets painted with that brush, I think. Yeah. I think Whedon tries to address that by making it, ooh, Western. And, ah, there's the outlying planets, and it's got a little bit of a grit and dirt to it. Yeah, it's certainly not shiny like Star Trek is at all. But, yeah, but it doesn't get rid of all of those Star Trek-y things. Which I think allows it to keep some of that escapist fantasy going. I keep kind of going off into these mental tangents, and I'm like, nope, that that episode is... I don't even remember at which point that is, so I'll just <laughs> save that comment. Yeah, uh, well, it's, yeah, it's... Yeah, I think I'm really going to enjoy going through these over the next year or so with you. Uh, like I said, we decided to do this about once a month, depending on the feed and editing. So, you know, if anybody wants to watch along with us, that's about the schedule we're going to be working on here. A couple people have already shown interest in coming on and talking, so uh, we'll see if we can work that out as well. Yeah, I, I gained new followers just by your mentioning me at the, like the last third of a paragraph. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, Fireflies. Yeah, Fireflies still has a following, and, and I would love to talk with these people. Yeah. Let's talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me directly, I'm Cobalt Blaze on Twitter. Uh, Shana, where's the best place to get a hold of you? Um, you can get me on Twitter as well at Inkyosa. That's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. Yeah. Uh, and until the next time, stay shiny. Stay shiny. I like it. Stay shiny.